Welcome to the Chapel and Transformation Podcast with your host, Sophia. In this podcast, be prepared to discover new ways to experience transformation in your life and expand your love of travel. We plan to bring together both sides of the table by introducing and reaching both travelers who are already on the personal development path and people on the personal development path who are not yet travelers. Be sure to follow, subscribe on your platform of choice. Please rate and review. Also, be sure to get in touch with Sophia. See details in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the Travel and Transformation Show with me, your host, Sophia. And today my guest is Najed. And I love, I love saying her name, Najed. It just sounds so cool. And she is with Pleasure Science. So she's a sex scholar, author, speaker, educator, who brings her warmth to heavy topics. She shares realistic and actionable ways to change your life for the better. Jed, thank you so much for being here. And oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to get through that, you know, while kind of butchering your name a little bit. <laughs> Oh, it's all good. It's actually pronounced Nadej, but you got it. You know, what's good about the name is once you remember it, you remember it. But I am so used to people stumbling through it that it really doesn't bother me at all. (laughs) And the funny thing is, guys, before we got started, I said her name perfectly, at least perfectly on the first try, on the first try, right? And now I'm doing it and, you know, maybe a little bit of nerves, but. That's natural. So I'm just going to go ahead and normalize that because I'm talking to a brand new person who I think is totally cool. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about pleasure science and just the whole way that this all came together? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because growing up, I was always someone who I didn't get embarrassed about things the way other people did. I noticed that really early on. Sex didn't embarrass me going up to my crush and telling them I liked them didn't really embarrass me. There were a lot of things that for other people, they had a lot of reservations about that I just didn't have. And when I got to university, I actually went as an English major. I always loved writing and I still do. And I got there and I realized the department wasn't the right fit for me. I wasn't having a good time, but I took this one class in LGBT studies And it opened me up to my school's gender and women's studies department, LGBT studies department. And so I realized I really wanted to continue studying, you know, the politics of sex and gender and power through taking this class. But the snag, the issue I ran into was I was a transfer student. The school that I went to was UC Berkeley. By the time I arrived, I was a junior and the department I was transferring into or attempting to transfer into, you need to write a two-year research paper for to graduate. So I basically was like, if I transfer into this major, I have to start writing a research paper that won't finish until I graduate. What on earth could I write about for two years and not get bored? (laughs) And it was sex. (laughs) And of course, it really helped that my school has an incredible department and incredible professors who truly specialize in human sexuality. So that's where it all began. I was studying. I loved it. I graduated from college and started writing about sex. And it was something that like kind of slowly started to take off. But around the time 2019 rolled around, I sort of realized, you know, I had been doing other jobs. I had found a a job in tech. I had found a job in real estate. 
even in law, I had kind of bounced around to different things because when I graduated, I thought, well, I was paying for school. So I knew I was going to study what I wanted to study because I was paying for it. But I also had the chip on my shoulder of, well, I can't get a job doing this. And then four or five years ago, I basically decided that I was sick of jumping around to different places of work or different industries. And that one thing had never changed since I graduated from university. And that was writing and researching about sex. And in my free time, I was still reading about it and writing articles online. And so this thought happened one day in 2019 of you should make something called pleasure science. And I didn't know what it was going to be, but the name pleasure science just sort of came and it really hit my heart. And it really felt like just alignment. It felt like I knew things weren't working. I knew I wanted to go in a different direction. And all of a sudden, pleasure science came. And so I created a blog called Pleasure Science. And a lot of the articles that I wrote became very popular on the internet. And I started on medium.com and I quickly became one of the top 1% of their writers on the platform. And it was really affirming because that story, you know, you can't do what you love. And I was like, wait a minute, maybe I can. And so Pleasure Science grew from there. And since then I wrote a book, I do events and retreats and teaching. And I'm in the process of launching our signature course, which I'm so excited about. It's going to come out next year. And it's amazing because I've spent, you know, the last 10 years researching sex or doing active work in community and pleasure science was truly born at exactly the right time when it was time for me to choose myself, which is something that even comes up a lot in the work that I do now is like really helping people choose themselves. That's one of the first steps of honoring your sexual journey. And it's one thing that I don't think we're really encouraged to do or to think of. Well, that actually leads me to two questions that I have. So pleasure science, is it literally what it sounds like? You know, the science of pleasure? pleasure? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, pleasure science is me studying the science of pleasure. That's what I do. I study it. I write about it. I teach about it. And pleasure science is also a company where you can find educational resources. You can go to events or virtual classes. So it's a platform that provides education and empowerment to people. I also have coaching services and other ways to like help really integrate this work. So on the one end, pleasure science is like the business. But then on the other end, it's truly born from me being a scientist who studies pleasure and studies sex and is the perfect name to describe what I do and how I serve the world. I love that. It just showed up. Because there's a couple of things that keep coming up, right? So one thing that I'd love the audience to really ground in and take hold of is that sometimes you don't know what it's going to be and it just shows up and you still aren't exactly sure, but you follow your intuition and you go with your gut. And then all of a sudden, everything just starts to materialize and fall into place. So there's that part. And then my company create life your way is also the message Mm. that I send out to the women who you know I coach and my audience is that you really want to create life your way you want to create a life Mm. that you want to wake up to you want to create that life that you love and that's something that you've done and I think that's so cool because so many times you hear oh you can't make money doing that you can't have a job doing that and then people put their dreams on the back burner 
or they toss them out because they don't feel like they can do this for a Mm -hmm. job. And you're living proof that, yeah, you can, you know? Yeah. I study the science of pleasure and sex. And now I've got an amazing job. Yeah. Talking about pleasure and sex. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, totally. And it's definitely, it's not a perfect journey and it's not a linear journey, but it is possible. And if I can make a business about sex, whoever is listening, you can make a business about whatever it is that you love too. (laughs) I so agree. And I just love that you're doing this and it's such a great example. So I talk a lot about sex and different things, but I really think that that part of your life is something that as women, we don't get to talk about enough and there's a lot of shame around it. And I think that there can be so much transformation that happens. And if you open up that part of your life, it can open up a bunch of other parts. So having Mm -hmm. said that, you know, I think a lot of women think that it's their job to please their partners Mm -hmm. while they're not getting pleased. So Mm -hmm. what is your take on that? I mean, first off, it's a huge problem. It's literally why we have something called the orgasm gap, which literally scientifically refers to the gap between straight heterosexual men and straight heterosexual women in relationships and how these men get orgasms and these women do not. And I also think, you know, one of the first parts about getting your pleasure in the bedroom is helping yourself believe that you're worthy of it. And then also normalizing the feeling of pleasure and receiving pleasure. And these two things should actually be happening outside of the bedroom, even if you are directly wanting to heal it inside of the bedroom. An analogy that I like to use if you're someone who's learning how to stop people pleasing or performing in the bedroom is stop people pleasing and performing in other areas of your life. And imagine yourself as if you are somewhat like a member of a basketball team. Sex is game day. And then training happens in all these other sessions. And training for sex should also be happening or training to not people please during sex should also be happening. But don't expect yourself to perform that on game day. Do that outside of the bedroom. So when you are with a friend and they're like, I want to go to this restaurant, but let's say you both agreed on another restaurant and you were genuinely looking forward to that. Speak up, don't people please in that moment, you know, normalize that feeling, normalize that behavior. And that's your quote unquote training. So that way, when you're in game day, when you're having sex, you've already started normalizing the feeling of speaking up for yourself, the discomfort that you feel when you do not, you know, fall Mm -hmm. into the people pleaser mentality and all of these things that way in game day, sex day, (laughs) it's a little bit easier to start doing those things as well. And let yourself have your process and let yourself have your time because these things also take time to develop. It is truly a muscle. And so going back to that training analogy, you know, you have to go to the gym so many times to build the muscle for something and to build the stamina. And so if you're working on showing up in the bedroom, speaking up for yourself and honoring your pleasure, you just have to do that over and over again in all the other areas of your life until you can start doing that in the bedroom too. I love that. It's like you're training for game day. You are. (laughs) An orgasmic game day, everybody. (laughs) I think that's something that we don't really think about, though, because it's almost like, well, in the movies, they walk in, they rip each other's clothes off and they Mm. end up in bed and they're having amazing sex. And they just met like five minutes ago. 
(laughs) you know, and it's almost like that's what begins to be normalized or with porn. Porn is a performance. Yeah. And yet there are humans out there who expect their partner to perform like a porn star. And it's like, but if you're actually having game day sex, it's not supposed to be a performance. It's supposed to be, you know, a give and take of a team for the game. Yeah, (laughs) truly. It is teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream fun. (laughs) But no, absolutely. And you know, what's interesting when we think of the way desire is represented in the media, it's really helpful to know the different arousal types. So the way humans experience arousal happens in two main ways. There's either spontaneous arousal or responsive arousal. And spontaneous arousal happens to be the one that we see in the media all the time. I see you. I'm so aroused. I have to have you. This very passionate, spontaneous thing. But many people have responsive arousal, which means that they experience arousal after someone maybe pursues them or talks to them or touches them. Like They need stimulus in order to start accessing that area. And also most of us fluctuate between like we'll have times where we're responsive and then maybe we'll have times where we're more spontaneous. That's also normal too. But the only thing we see in the media or the only thing we see in porn is usually a representation of spontaneous desire. And so it can get really confusing because it does set this standard and the standard is somewhat reflective of the human behavior, but it's only one of the human behaviors and not the full range of them. And so it can feel like we're failing or we're not fun enough if we have responsive desire or tend to have responsive desire. And I think that's really good to know because again, it normalizes the fact that no, you are not a failure because you're not having this amazing spontaneous desire and it's okay. And that's, I think the thing that I really just want to keep saying it's okay. Nothing is wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. There are people who've been like, I've seen who they feel like something's wrong with them because they're not orgasming or they're not being able to have that whole spontaneous thing happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, your self-esteem takes a hit and then it just snowballs into a whole bunch of other stuff. It snowballs so big, so fast, (laughs) especially because we don't talk about sex. So the second something is wrong, a lot of times so much other shame and pain points get activated and then repressed at the same time because we're taught in order to do sex successfully, (laughs) it needs to be private and it needs to be disciplined. Like if pleasure is valid, it's disciplined. And if sex is tolerated, it's because it's happening in private or it's happening in a polite way. And sex is incredibly primal and unique and specific and not at all what we're taught about, but you know, absolutely. So that's shame spiral and that snowball. Ooh, you're not alone. (laughs) It it comes and it comes quick and it hits you in the face. (laughs) Right. So what's a good way to feel like secure and connected to your body so that when these things happen, you're already feeling good about your body. You're feeling good in your body. You're feeling connected to your body. Cause I know There's a lot of times when you don't even realize that you're not connected to your body. Yeah. And totally. I think it's a hard thing because I know even with me, people before I actually understood what was going on, 
It's like, well, how are you feeling in your body? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because totally. I spend a lot of time in my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a fun place to hang out up there. But... Oh, 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I would say first off, you know, connection to body and body love is an absolute journey. And sometimes the first step on that journey is to get to a place of neutrality where the goal of loving your body might not feel realistic because of the messages and oppression that happens in life. But getting to a place of body neutrality can be a great first step. So just even planting that seed for anyone who's listening. But I would say great ways to connect to your body in the bedroom or even outside of the bedroom, but to start establishing that is breathing and movement. So if you're someone who is interested or has ever heard of breath work, that Mm -hmm. is a great place to start. Find a course online or maybe an intro class and learn a couple breathing techniques because breathing will get you so quickly in touch with your body. It will help you slow down. It'll soothe the nervous system. It's a really great tool. And one tool to even that before anyone does research, a great tool that I provide to a lot of my clients is doing the four, six count breath. And so what that means is you inhale for four counts and exhale for six counts. When you exhale for longer than you inhale, you immediately tell your body that it's okay to calm down and that you're safe. It has a very, very quick response to your body. Your body responds to that quickly. So if you're in the bedroom and you're nervous, Taking a break to breathe in for four counts and exhale for six counts and doing this a couple of times can be an instant body connector and a great way to re-regulate your nervous system. And then movement. Movement is such a great way to connect to your body and using whatever movement works for you and you know whatever your body is able to do. There's no right or wrong way to engage in movement. Maybe you want to take a yoga class. Maybe yoga isn't accessible to you and your body's ability. So just stretching or moving, something that can also be a nice way to engage with movement. If movement is difficult or strained is to like just caress your fingers over parts of your body, your face, your hands. So there's a lot of different ways to incorporate movement, touch or breathing that are simple, but are great little starting steps to be helping you connect back to your body And are even things you can use in the bedroom, you know? And if, by the way, if you're ever in the middle of sex and you want to take a break and you don't know how to tell your lover that you need a break to like breathe, Mm -hmm. (laughs) say that you want water. Like I need a water break. That is such an instant, easy way to ask for a break during sex that doesn't make it about anybody. Because I know a lot of times we can feel really nervous about asking for a break or anything during sex because it can be inferred that your partner is not doing something right, right or that you're not enjoying yourself. And I think that's something we all carry in our own different ways. So if you are feeling yourself not connected to body during sex, say, oh, you know, can we take a water break? Get up, have some water, do a couple of breaths and then go back. That's a great neutral way to ask for a pause. I love that. Now I'm here. Hmm. Never even thought about asking for a pause, but that's a really cool thing because admittedly I have been in the middle of sex and then started thinking about other stuff. Like I got to go to the grocery store and I got to buy, yeah. you know, and it wasn't really anything yeah. that had to do with my partner. It's just, these were just things that were on my mind and I didn't have a moment to really download those things 
before we got busy. So I started, you know, had a moment and started thinking about it. And that would have been a great time to be like, can we get a water break? (laughs) So I could get present because I think that's one of the things that you really want to do is be present when you're having sex or when you're with your partner, even if you're in conversation, you want to be able to be present. And I think that's one of the things that breath does is bring you present because that's the only time you Mm. can actually breathe. It's in the present. So it just brings you back in to be right here, right now. Yeah. And then being able to enjoy what's happening in the moment. Yeah, totally. How would you describe somebody who is sabotaging their desires? So what's really fascinating about self-sabotage when it relates to sex is that your sexual needs will always find a way to get met, even if you repress them or they're in your subconscious. What you need, you will make manifest. And with sex, we repress a lot because we're taught that we're weird for our desires or we're unclean or we're unworthy. We have a lot of stories around what it means to be a human having desires. And a lot of those stories are not good. And so we tend to repress things in our sex life or our love life. And then those things we're repressing are actual needs. So Mm -hmm. your brain will find ways to get those needs met. And it's usually through self-sabotage. And a reason that this happens is one, self-sabotage is a great way to predict the future. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's kind of safe. You're going to continue to get the same outcome. And then two, we can self-sabotage simply because we're repressing a need and we're just not being honest with ourselves. And some common ones can be being in a monogamous relationship, but maybe you're not actually that monogamous. And so you're cheating a lot and you don't even care about these people that you're cheating with. You know, you love your main squeeze. You know, you love your lover, but you're not monogamous, but you're too afraid to say this because you grew up in a situation that taught you that monogamy equals success Mm. in sex and in love. Mm -hmm. And so to admit that you want a relationship style outside of that would be failure, right? And then you're compulsively cheating. That's just one example. It can show up in so many different ways. And I would say that cheating is its own also behavior that can have a lot of reasons like infidelity and unfaithfulness can have a lot of different reasons. And it isn't always, I mean, it actually usually always is (laughs) self-sabotage. It's quite a, it's a sabotage type of behavior. But I don't want to shame anyone for that or assume that it just means you're non-monogamous because that may not be what's happening. But that can be just an example of how sexual self-sabotage happens. Another one that I often see is people who suppress their need. Like a lot of people have attention-seeking behaviors where they want attention or affection romantically or sexually, but they feel like vain or invalid. Like again, you know, sex done the right way is sex done politely and private. Pleasure done the right way is pleasure through discipline. So people who want attention or affection erotically might feel like shameful for doing that. And so Mm -hmm. they'll have a lot of attention seeking behaviors that are really unhealthy in other social situations. Mm -hmm. But it's because the affection and attention that is needed, they're not asking for or feeling worthy for in sex, in the bedroom or in a relationship. So it's really fascinating because the idea of sexual self-sabotage is so nuanced and it's so layered. And yet it often is very simple. There's often a very simple underlying need. And the first thing to kind of tackle with self-sabotage is really trying to figure out like, what are you gaining from the self-sabotage? Right, right. And then 
what needs do you have that maybe you're repressing and like starting there. And that's another journey in and of itself. And there's going to be many layers and you don't need to expect yourself to get to the root of something. And in fact, a lot of times with sex, like people will come to me and be like, I really like to date younger men and be a mommy. Why? Why do I like that? Who cares? Let the mystery (laughs) be. And I'm sure you will figure it out at some point. Your brain is an incredible little computer. If you ask it a question, it's going to find the answer at some point. But you don't need the answer to be happy and you don't need the answer to be sexually empowered. You need the acceptance and the self-acceptance. I love that. So, okay. What do you consider erotic mindfulness? I love this question. First off, I would say anyone listening, the first thought you have for erotic mindfulness, follow that because that could be your definition and it's different, you know, slightly different for all of us. But I would say erotic mindfulness is stepping into a habit of being in pleasure rather than seeking pleasure. We live Mm -hmm. in a counterintuitive culture that is teaching you, like I said, pleasure should be disciplined and yet you should be seeking it out at all times. And like we have so many things to watch and so many things to do and so many, you know, so we're taught to be constantly seeking pleasure in a consumer capitalist culture. And this act of seeking pleasure can be very surface level and not very intentional. But being in pleasure is a complete mindset shift where you become aware of all the things you already have that bring you pleasure from your Mm. relationships to your objects, to your clothes, to your food. And that right there is a great shift in erotic mindfulness. And then we can also go a step further. Erotic mindfulness can also be exploring Tantra. So you can use breath work during sex. It can be doing naked yoga. It can be setting an intention before masturbation. You can take any type of mindfulness practice from meditation, movement. You can really make them all erotic. And I encourage people to do so because that'll show you how you can nourish yourself and connect to your eroticism. But it can also be a very simple act. Like erotic mindfulness can be that simple shift of instead of seeking out pleasure, let me be in pleasure and see what I like right now. And it can also be savoring. Savoring is a really incredible psychological hack where you stop what you're doing and savor all the good parts of the moment, whether it's a meal you're eating, a hug you're receiving, hanging out with your dad, you haven't seen him in a while, you're watching a movie and you love his laugh. So that's also erotic mindfulness because erotic doesn't mean sex. Erotic means pleasure. It means nourishment. It means sensuality. And it's the challenge to consider yourself as an already always sexual being, even for people who are on the asexual spectrum. We are all sexual beings. We all have a sexuality and we all have the right to be sensual and erotic. And that can mean whatever you want for a lot of different people. There's in fact, thinking of this topic, there's this great influencer. Her first name is Yasmin and her last name I think is Benoit. And she's an asexual activist. And she went viral recently because she did a lingerie shoot. And then a lot of people were slamming her saying, well, you can't be asexual and go around wearing lingerie and Hmm. showing your cleavage. And she was like, yeah, I can. I can be an erotic being. And it doesn't need to be in the pursuit of, do you want to fuck me? You know? Hmm. And so holding this duality is also erotic mindfulness. So it's such a diverse, fun, you know, thing to define for yourself. 
Like what is erotic mindfulness for you? Sit in and think in that and see what comes up. I really like that because when you think of the word erotic, you always, well, not always, I can't say always because I don't know who's listening. But for me, I almost always equate it to sex or something sexual, or if it's literature, it's sexual based. Mm. So I like that this is a whole other way to think about being erotic and just really considering what that's about for you. I like that. And I also like being in pleasure Mm -hmm. as opposed to seeking pleasure. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that commercial where the person's head blows off and it's like all purple. (laughs) That kind of was like, what? (laughs) I love it. I'm glad. (laughs) Yeah. I know it's a big mindset shift. It's so, yeah. Because when I think about it, there are so many parts of the day when I'm actually in pleasure. I'm not Mm -hmm. seeking anything, but I may be remembering something or thinking about something, or just in the moment I've had something like really good and I feel really good. So it's just like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) just to really think about that. And it's like, wow, I actually already do that, Mm. but not notice it. Mm. So now to be intentional and notice it and to be in pleasure. Yeah. That's like... A whole thing. It's a thing, mm-hmm. y'all. It's a thing. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And so now I've got to read this. Mm. So I met you at a panel and you gave out these cool little bookmarks. And on the bookmark, it has erotic affirmations. Mm-hmm. So now that we have gotten to the point where eroticism doesn't have to equate to sex, listen mm. to these. Mm-hmm. My sexuality is a sanctuary where I discover safety and satisfaction. My body and I trust each other. I have the power to heal my life. Now, the last one, definitely I've heard before because, you know, Louise Hay, I've got the book. Yes. Um, (laughs) The second one, my body and I trust each other. That's a whole other thing. Yeah, (laughs) I think that could be a podcast all by itself right there. Because again, we've talked about connecting to our bodies, being in our bodies. But now this is like a whole nother layer, trusting my body. I trust my body. My body trusts me like we're one, but it's almost like sometimes we treat each other as separate. Yeah. And we have to trust each other. So. Do you find that the movement that we've talked about and just the different things that we've already mentioned are ways that you can start to trust your body? Yeah. You don't feel like you already do. Absolutely. But I would say a step even more powerful because I'd say movement, breath, those are ways to get in body, to get embodied. But a step with building the trust, that movement will build the trust because you are being one with your body when you're in movement or when you're in breath, but also actually talking to your body. For example, like if you look at your calendar and you feel like really overwhelmed and then you ask your body like, oh, we're supposed to go to this tea party on Saturday. Do you want to go? And your body will tell you the answer. And then you listen to what your body has to say and you honor it. 
Mm. And that's a way that we build trust. And I think a reason why that is such an important piece of this pie is because when we're kids, our parents or guardians are training us to ignore our body impulses because we don't know things like don't touch the fire, don't jump in the pool, you'll drown, you know? So when we're kids, we're like running around and trying to be in pleasure, frankly. And then the adults in the room are trying to show us how to not die. (laughs) (laughs) And so you have this very confusing experience growing up where you're taught to discipline your pleasure for your own health and safety. And then maybe also shamed another, like, you know, there's the negative shadows to it too. But even just thinking on a baseline fundamental level, like your parents or guardians are telling you, no, don't eat too much sugar. It's not good for you. So you're training yourself to discipline pleasure. You're also training yourself not to listen to your body's impulses and to listen to an adult who knows better at that time. And then when we become adults, we might still have these other adults in our life who try to tell us or give us advice on how to live. But at this point, when we're adults, we have so normalized the experience of, oh, I want an extra donut, but I can't have one. Oh, I want to do this, but I can't have it. And so taking that extra step to talk to your body will help rebuild that trust Mm -hmm. and heal whatever wounds have occurred when you were being disciplined and when you were being trained by the adults in your life, how to survive. And so I think that's why it's also important to take that piece of starting to talk to your body and ask your body questions and pause and see what your body has to say. It's a really fascinating and interesting experience to start doing. It can feel uncomfortable at first, but your body really does have something to say and your body can really be a guiding light and a compass. We just have to slow down enough to hear it or ask our body in order to hear what it has to say. What's a good example that you could give? Well, you kind of gave an example, but you ask your body something, but how do you know what the answer is? Like, how do you know what it's telling you? Especially if you're new to it and this isn't something that it's like a whole foreign concept. It's like, I got to talk to it now too. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And that's such a good question too, because your body doesn't speak in words. It speaks in feelings and impulses and gut reactions. And so if we have already trained ourselves to not listen to that, it's going to be harder to hear it. So one thing that I will say is what's really fascinating is your body's feeling of contentment or pleasure or yes can often be a lot quieter than the impulse to override and do whatever you've been doing. Mm-hmm. So noticing the quiet can help. But I would also say, you know, if you are at that place where you're like, okay, well, I asked my body, but I don't know what I want. My body doesn't know what I want. I'm having trouble. Notice what makes you tired. So if you are again looking at your schedule or receiving a text from a friend and they're like, oh, can you talk on the phone? And you just had a long day at work and you feel tired. The answer is usually no. And so trusting your levels of tiredness or noticing like when you're finished with hanging out with someone, do you feel re-energized or do you feel tired? That feeling of exhaustion or burnout or tiredness is one of the first instances that your body is trying to tell you that it's a no. And that's a great place to start. And it can be confusing because sometimes we might have a friend 
who feels really exciting to be around and yet doesn't treat us very well. And mm-hmm. so there's this counterintuitive situation happening of, ooh, well, I feel stimulated and excited by the idea of being included or being around these people. And yet every time I leave, I feel tired and insecure and not re-energized. And like really focusing on how you feel after can help start to regulate the impulse to override your intuition and do some things that may be draining and not bringing you pleasure. Hmm. Okay. So we'll have to look at that and actually start having conversations, but being quiet enough and slow down enough to hear, feel, or intuit the answer. Yeah. Which again, it also takes time. Like I'm someone who is a huge recovering people pleaser, like in and out of the bedroom. And I've gotten to a point now where I really have connected with my body. I'm very good with my nose. I'm very good with my boundaries. But for most of my life, you know, really before starting to do the sex work that was healing me and healing others, I was such a people pleaser. I was a total performer in the bedroom. I would shape shift to whatever the other person wanted. And so it took a long time for me to start being able to talk to my body, hear what it had to say, not second guess my choices. Mm. So if that's where you're at, that's part of the process. You're actually on the right path if you're feeling this confusion and you're feeling these mixed messages. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It means you're in the transformation. Yeah, I like that. Again, coming back to normalize, but then noticing that you are transforming. So even if you're not taking leaps and bounds and it's like, oh, I just scaled the tallest building, you're still transforming. It's just you're doing it in your own time and you have to just allow it. You do. Listen, you're in no rush, only your hurry. So take your time. So here's something that, well, it might seem a little left, but y'all, it's not really left. It's just, (laughs) we're taking a curve. So one thing that we haven't touched on with you yet is the fact that you are a trained dominatrix. So can you tell us about that (laughs) and how you got into it? Absolutely. So Speaking of self-sabotage and needs not getting met, I am a super kinky person. It's how I give and receive love and especially in my love life. And I honestly, now at this point, I'm like, I'm kinky all over the place. (laughs) I see it show up in all other areas of my life. But with love and sex, I had a lot of shame around because I really grew up hating the idea that because I was socialized as a woman, I should cook for someone, I should be subservient to someone, I should be a wife. Those were things that really from a young age, I don't know why, like truly when I was like a kid, always rubbed me the wrong way. And I always had an aversion. For example, I love the color pink. But when I was a kid, I would get mad at people if they bought me something pink. I don't know what it was, but there was something there. And so when I started having sex as a sexual being, there was a need to be in submissive energy to really receive. And a part of that is because like, I'm such a go-getter in other areas of my life. And so when it comes to love and sex, I'm a lot more submissive than I would be in my work life or my social life where I'm very dominant. But because I had this chip on my shoulder about what it means to be a woman in society and these stories of what it means to submit, when I started exploring BDSM, I was super turned off because I was already rejecting a part of myself. So by the time I got to college, I was sick and tired of that. And I was studying sex at this point. So I was facing a lot of stuff head on. And I was 
going to Berkeley. So I'm right next door to San Francisco, which has a very, very big BDSM leather community. And so there was this club called the Cat Club, which every Wednesday had a party called Bondage A Go-Go. And I went. I went with a group of friends because I had such a curiosity and such a calling to this community. And so I went, I had an incredible time, but I was still not ready to admit or step into the idea that I could be a submissive. And a big reason too was being someone who is queer and isn't always really attracted to men, but having the space that I was in at that time be really male dominated, I didn't feel comfortable being a submissive at all. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to train to be a dominatrix instead. So I went ahead and I found a mentor and he trained me for about a year in San Francisco. And then I graduated from school and moved to Los Angeles, which is actually where I'm from originally. And I started training here too. I took a couple of years off because I did get a little bit of burnout from the BDSM community and unfortunately had some negative experiences that I needed to like take time and heal from. Mm. But After a couple of years, it was like the itch came back of, oh, but you need kink in your life, you know? And so I asked around and I found a woman named Hudsey Han, who's an incredible dominatrix in Los Angeles. And she trained me and started kind of picked up where I had left off before. And it was really wonderful. And so, yeah, so now I have two years of training and I'm very knowledgeable in this area. And it's wonderful because as a sex scholar and coach, that has really helped me help people because in BDSM, we have so much communication and consent. And so it's been a really wonderful thing to help others navigate and find tools for as well. But yeah, that's how the kinky uh, dominatrix Nadege happened. And I'm still kinky. I'm not a pro-dom, so I don't dominate people I don't know. It's really for my personal life. And mm. and that's the other thing, you know, folks, you can get trained in BDSM and you can become, you know, a professional, but you can also just get trained so you can use that as erotic play in your personal life, which is what I did. And it's super fulfilling. And now I feel very comfortable being a submissive and submitting to people because I know BDSM inside and out, you right. know? So I feel very safe in that because of education. So. Are there any misconceptions about BDSM or being a dominatrix that you'd like to clear up? There are so many, and I'm sure I won't be able to tackle all of them. But one that comes to mind is BDSM isn't always sexual and sex should not be expected. If you are someone who is exploring BDSM and you're talking to someone and they're assuming that you two are going to have sex because you're talking about BDSM, that's a big red flag and a no-no. BDSM is erotic play. And remember that erotic does not mean sex. So BDSM can be you, you know, having impact play, which means thinking or getting flogged. It can be like an experience where you're having sensations. You can also do like extended role play in the BDSM world. There's lots of ways you can play and explore that. But sex is not mandatory. And it shouldn't be expected unless you and your lover or you and your BDSM play partner have agreed that that's something that you're both excited to explore. Mm. So I'd say that's a big misconception. And that's an important one because like I said, I had some negative experiences. And part of that was because I didn't know that I could say no to certain things. I thought certain things were expected Mm. and that is not accurate, you know? So that's a big misconception. And I think another misconception about BDSM is that it has to be very elaborate. 
that you need to like buy a bunch of things or take a bunch of classes, which I do recommend taking classes and educating yourself because there are some toys, like if you're playing with rope, you can cut off blood circulation and other things. So it is actually, I very highly recommend educating yourself a little bit. But a big misconception is that you need to buy a lot of stuff and make it very elaborate. And that's not true. You know, being kinky can literally mean sending your lover a voice note and being like, take off your underwear right now. And if you come home and your underwear is on, you're going to get spanked. Doesn't cost you any money to do that, you know, (laughs) but you are entering into a kinky energy. And so you don't need to like go out and buy a lot of stuff. The only thing you should be buying is some educational classes. So you're safe, (laughs) but you don't need to buy a lot of stuff other than that, unless you want to. But I'd say those are probably the two biggest misconceptions that I see that make BDSM feel inaccessible or intimidating. Thank you for that. Because I think that's really a big deal. Because especially the way, again, if we're going back to the medium, the way we see it portrayed or the way we see it portrayed in the literature yeah. It is always about sex. Mm-hmm. Somewhere the beginning, the end, the middle, somewhere. Yeah. It's sexual. Now, I like that you brought up the fact that it is pleasure-centered, yeah. but not necessarily sexual. Yeah. So it's like, I'm going to the park and I'm going on the swing and it's going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that can and even be kinky because of... you could be playing like a daddy baby girl fantasy and go to the park with your stuffed animal and pretend to be like a little, you know, like there's so many ways that you can be kinky. And actually, you know, as you were talking, another big misconception that I thought of is also that BDSM always includes pain. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Sadism and masochism is certainly a part of BDSM. And it can be so wonderful and yummy. And I'm here for all the consensual pain that people want, but it doesn't always have to involve pain or be painful. It can be very sensual and very play and pleasure focused. And also another misconception is that people who do like pain, it doesn't mean that they were abused. A lot of people who enjoy painful, kinky sex, it's not because something bad happened to them. Because that's fun. <laughs> Let them have their fun. You know, don't right. yuck someone's yum. Um, <laughs> like that. So those are actually, <laughs> those are some others. Cause I think a lot of the time too, we can automatically assume, oh, you like BDSM, something bad happened to you. Mm. No. <laughs> it's, it's and, like, I you just know, like it. <laughs> you just like it. And if something traumatic did happen to you and you also like BDSM, BDSM can be an incredible way to heal trauma as well. But I recommend finding a trauma-informed therapist and some BDSM experts to explore that and not just jump in and try to heal trauma by using BDSM without the proper support systems in place. But yeah. Now that's also, I've heard before, and I think that is also pretty interesting that you can actually use that as a form of healing from trauma. But again, within a container, yeah. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people miss. No matter what kind of trauma you're trying to heal from, you want to heal in a container. So that container can be created with the right facilitation. So whether it's yeah. a coach or a therapist, and if it's deep trauma, probably a therapist. <laughs> yeah. Know? At least have a therapist be part of the support system. Yeah. And then the whole word system implies Mm -hmm. that there can be multiples, right? You can have 
a breathwork coach, a trauma-informed coach. You can have your therapist. You can have your play partners. You know, that's the route you're going to go down. Absolutely. So yeah, I love that we're talking about forming a container so people don't feel like, I want to do this thing, but now I'm by myself. Yeah. And one of my other podcasts, we talked about how you find somebody who is friendly towards, you know, kink and all the things, you know, that are outside the quote unquote norm. And it's just really about Mm -hmm. asking good questions and knowing what you're looking for and then listening for what kind of experience they have, listening for judgment, (laughs) listening for a lot of different things, because the healing process, I think when you're with somebody, it's about the relationship that you form. Because mm-hmm. when you have the good relationship, then the comfort level opens up. And then that's when mm-hmm. you can start digging deep and getting to the goodies, so to speak, so that you yeah. can bring them to the surface and heal them. Because I think so many of the times we don't even know what needs healing because it's yeah. so far in there, you know? Yeah. So that's Absolutely. just kind of my take on things. I agree a hundred percent. But I have to say though, now, this really is left, y'all. <laughs> she, like me, is a very multi-passionate person. So she's into things that don't seem to connect, but then they do. <laughs> Just like <laughs> travel and transformation doesn't seem like they connect, but they do. But they do. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about you being an astrologer. Like you Absolutely. birth charts and compatibility? Do you do sex charts? Like what do you do? I'm I do, Yes, I do <laughs> sextrology chart readings. So I look at your birth chart and I see what placements are activating your sex life. What are your romantic patterns? What's happening in your sexual subconscious? All of that kind of stuff. And it's so funny because I started off my career through the academic route and I always loved astrology. I'm a very spiritual person in my personal life and astrology When I was 15 years old, a friend took me to a bookstore and I found the astrology section and it just really spoke to me. And I think when it comes to spirituality, you know, we're all just trying to find ways to understand this human experience. And we Mm -hmm. all have different ways of connecting with what that means, finding meaning and getting messages about our purpose in our life. And for me, astrology really is a way that I understand and sort of translate the things we can't explain. And I'm very connected to it. And so when I started my business, I was actually always doing charts and things for friends. I was sort of a party trick. (laughs) Like my friends would call (laughs) me over and be like, pull up their charts and tell them about themselves. And I'm very good, you know? So people would be like, how did you know that? And I would just be like, I don't know. It's how I talk to the universe. I don't know. (laughs) But I'm very good at it. And so I started getting feedback when I started pleasure science and I started doing coaching and consulting and working with people. People would tell me like, you should do astrology charts with your clients. And by people, I mean, my friends, people in my personal life were like, you should do this with your clients, you know, and especially since astrology was so popular, but I had such a fear, you know, I mean, it takes so much to start a business and maintain it and grow Mm -hmm. it. And I was just like, well, so much of my business and my credibility is about me being a scholar and me being a researcher. And I was like, if I tell people I like astrology, all my credibility will be ruined. (laughs) So there were some haters who tried to drag me through the mud about 
that I love to do astrology and how can I call myself a scholar? But it kind of rolled right off my back because at the end of the day, the whole purpose of my business is to like help and serve. So why not do what I'm good at and help and serve in ways that I understand? So I'm so happy that I incorporated astrology into the work that I do. And you know, and it's an offering where it's like, if you like astrology, then come on over. And if it's not your cup of tea, then look at my other services or educational resources that may be less esoteric. (laughs) (laughs) I love that because I'm also about astrology. So now, okay, so obviously you don't have my birth chart, but do you do generalizations? Like I'm a Virgo. Oh, oh, I love Virgos. (laughs) So what would you say just in general about Virgo? Well, Virgo is actually one of my favorite signs to talk about because we were all taught that Virgo is the archetype of the virgin or the maiden, and that's not true. For thousands of years, Virgo was a fertility goddess, worshipped as a fertility goddess, and has been seen as major goddesses throughout our culture, including Isis, one of the most longest standing goddesses that have been worshipped in our time. And so the first thing about Virgo is all about the flesh, all about health, Because Virgo is a fertility goddess who rules the sixth house of health, wellness, and routines, Virgo is sort of like the medicine woman of the Zodiac. And it's a really, yeah, Virgos are incredible healers. They're great with their hands. They're very sensual. And then they can be very organized and very pragmatic, but almost the way a doctor would be, you know, because they're healers and they're erotic people too. A fertility goddess is someone who loves sex and is very much in the no in that arena. And so what happened throughout history was with the rise of monotheistic religions, as opposed to polytheistic religions, and our monotheistic religions that we have right now are very specific in that they really only worship male archetypes. They don't worship female archetypes or feminine archetypes. The fertility goddess and the archetype of Virgo got basically erased And then over time, she began to be rethought of and repurposed as a virgin. And if you think about it, the best way to take away the power and credibility of a fertility goddess is to call her a virgin. And a lot of this in the 1400s, the printing press was invented. And the first book that was printed was the Bible. And the second most popular book printed at the time was a witch hunting manual, which basically was a manual on how to spot medicine women and stop them from doing their practice with lay people. And a couple centuries later, the university system and the healthcare system was kind of started. And so all of these things, and those, of course, were white male dominated industries. And so we just basically saw a complete erasure in medicine women, in shamans, in healers, basically healers outside of any institution. And the erasure of Virgo as a fertility goddess happened on a major scale around the same time over those centuries. And so they were very much connected. And so whenever I meet a Virgo, that's one of the first things I say is forget any idea that you were meant to be thought of as a virgin. That's hogwash. You are the emblem of a fertility goddess, a healer of an incredibly erotic being and someone who's really all about the flesh. Well, I mean, you are doing Reiki and you are a healer and you do all of these things. So in fact, it is very on par with what Virgo represents and what Virgo is. But a lot of whenever I meet Virgos, you know, something that Virgos are actively healing in this lifetime is the erasure of sexuality and like being an erotic being, you know, like Virgos 
need to have the space to reclaim their sexuality and be seen as a wild creature, as opposed to this virgin that is contained and neurotic. And that is not that is not accurate. <laughs> and every time I hear or read astrology stuff and I see a Virgo as the virgin, it's honestly one of the things I'm actively like trying to talk about more because it's not true. And I love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It has been such an incredible pleasure having you on the show. And yeah, I'd love to have you back again because we opened so many boxes just a little bit. Yeah. That could just be complete shows by themselves. <laughs> so I would love to have you again and just thank you so much for being here. And now I can go take my Virgo self that's not the virgin and explore. <laughs> yes. And thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing with this podcast and what you do with your work. And, you know, we're all stronger together. So it's, it's such a beautiful blessing to have been invited here and to chat with you. And I'm just so grateful that you make the space to have these conversations. It's so important. And it's very Virgo. So <laughs> go you Virgo. <laughs> cool. All right. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs>